Welcome to Sport Management Review Insights. I'm your host, Vito Sopra. In recent times, we've been hearing more about the sad stories of children being badly treated while participating in sport, with some examples of horrifying abuse. It raises the question of what can be done to ensure the safety of children during sport participation. And that's the topic for this episode. And joining us to consider this is someone who's published widely on child protection in sport and the coach-athlete relationship. He's a reader in psychology at Loughborough University. It's Daniel Ryan. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on on a a very uh, important topic, of course. Daniel and co-authors Frank Owusu-Sekaye and Laura Hills recently published Safeguarding Culture Towards a New Approach to Preventing Child Maltreatment in Sport. Uh, Daniel, as I mentioned, this issue of child safety in sport has been much reported on in recent times. We've seen some terrible stories. But from an academic perspective, how did this paper help our understanding of the area? Yeah, I think, as you said, there's been lots of anecdotal evidence and research evidence over the last 10 years that this is a problem in sport. And a lot of the research had typically focused on understanding the, the problem. So what we wanted to really try and do with our research program is move it towards, okay, what's the solution here? What do we actually, we know it's a problem, we know something around the risk factors, but what can we actually do in organisations? And what we try to do on this paper is go beyond the fact that there's a, a simple silver bullet which solves everything so you can create a a policy or have background checks and that will solve the problem when actually what we're trying to find for our research is that what we need is a safeguarding culture and that's really the result of a a thousand small changes rather than one simple change so that was the big picture we were trying to establish how'd you come to this perspective of looking at culture you know there's so like you say so many things going on from a research perspective how did you come to consider this an important topic to, to consider yeah, a lot of uh, inquiries or, or national um, investigations that went on, they all concluded it was something to do with the, the culture that went wrong, whether it's in sports or in, in the church or in other organisational settings. So we started to, to think about how can we actually study this in an academic way? What does culture really mean and how can we understand that? So we looked at other industries, actually, which might seem a little bit distant to child protection, but it was other areas where there's high risk. So it might be uh, aviation when things go wrong in that industry or nuclear power plants or in, in surgery, in hospitals. So we thought, how do they understand safeguarding culture? What can we learn? And this kind of conceptualization and our approach came from these other industries where they have a high risk and they, they've studied it in a way which looks at culture as a lens through which we can solve the problem. So we really drew on other um, areas and try to transfer that into sport and into child protection. It is fascinating that you, you bring in these other areas and consider perhaps things we don't usually consider in sport. Mm-hmm. So that's a that's a, a fascinating way to go about it. Now, as you mentioned, you, you're taking this safety culture approach. Can you tell us a bit more specifically what this means and how it relates to sport? I, I'd noticed that you mentioned three contributing factors in the paper. So fundamentally, safety culture is really around what do people do around here as the norm, whether it's attitudes, beliefs, um, understanding of what's appropriate. So that's we really wanted to understand what, what are the factors that shape that. So uh, we've developed the international safeguards for children in sport in previous projects. So that was eight things that should be in place. And we'd worked closely with a number of organisations, um, five of which became case studies where one of the co-authors, Frank Kouisa-Sekaya, conducted in-depth kind of interviews and went to visit them uh, and so on. What we tried to look at was what were the factors that were common across all these different settings? So there were five different countries, different sized organisations, different missions from performance or participation. And we tried to understand, irrespective of the, the setting and the, and the focus, what was important. And we identified that at the heart of it, to develop a safeguarding culture, wherever you are, there's three fundamental contributing factors. So one is the safeguarding management system. So that's the, having the policies, the procedures in place. 
The second area is the committed leadership. So from the person at the top of the organization through to maybe it's regional people or even club people. So that everywhere throughout an organization, there's somebody leading on, on safeguarding in that given context. Uh, and there's also the engaging the stakeholders. So to get safeguarding culture working, you have to engage whether it's the children, the parents, the coaches, to get their input, their buy-in and their ownership of the issue. So we found that if you get all those three things in place, you can start to develop a safeguarding culture where there wasn't a good system or there wasn't leadership or there wasn't engagement, then that's where things started to fall down. And kind of underpinning all these three areas is this contextual factor in our model. And that states that we need to take into account actually where we're looking at the, the given safeguarding culture. So it could be the language people use, the political context, the, the laws, um, and all those things feed into it. So you can't just say, well, that works in um, Australia, we'll copy and paste it and move it to a different country. Or that works in Great Britain, we'll move it to a different country. It has to be tailored to the given setting. And that's why we have this contextual factors playing such an important role in terms of being sensitive to the given culture. To actually conduct the research, you conducted interviews and in, in focus groups. The first thing I thought of, well, this is a sensitive issue. Um, how difficult was it to recruit research participants? And I can imagine ethical issues must have just been front of mind every time you were, you were doing the data collection. Yeah, 100%. So I think uh, to pick up on, on both of those points, this was a the first thing was that we'd built rapport and trust over a number of years. So we've been working on this project more broadly since 2012 in the aftermath of the London Olympics, where we had this big idea as a whole group of people from academics and charities and uh, UNICEF uh, and NSPCC. And there's all these different organizations that, that wanted to do something in this space. Um, and so that was one thing that helped is they trusted us that when we'd done projects in the past, we had meant it when we said it would be anonymous and confidential and they would have the right to, to review our things before they were published. And so it was that demonstrating our approach over a number of years, because as you say, people, if you go in cold, think, are you just going in there? Um, particularly as our research team was based in the Britain, there was that initial hurdle that are you coming in here to criticize us and you're positioning yourself as the expert and you're telling us what we're doing wrong and you're coming in to, to mark our homework and see, you know, are we passing or failing? So we had to overcome that, that hurdle, if you like, by, getting the trust and, and explaining actually we're to help you. We're, we're the experts maybe in research, but you're the experts in safeguarding in your experiences. So we're on a level playing field here. We're, we're not somehow above you. So that, that, that overcoming that hurdle was an important one to, um, to get their trust. Um, and as you imagine, ethics was a real challenge because the standard thing whenever you write a, an ethics application is that it's going to be confidential and that works for most of the time. But actually when you're talking about safeguarding, you have to understand when it's confidential to a line. So if you are concerned that a child could be at risk or there could be harm going on, then there's a line where it crosses that. We have to think, actually, I need to report it to social services or the police or to use procedures within the organisation. So we had to think all that through um, prior to collecting any data and make everybody aware that, that there was a confidentiality, but there was a line where actually we had to make sure we were ethical. Um, and in particularly in some cases where uh, a lot of it was sport for development. And so again, the standard thing in ethics is to get um, parental consent and that's not always easy if you're working with organizations where they're working with uh, refugees and they haven't have necessarily have that that family support mechanisms around you so how do you how do you involve you know people in that setting um, because you don't want ethics to actually prevent you engaging to listen to the children's voice because there's a lot of mantra now around engaging with children but we did find that really difficult in our in our study to get that ethical approval to listen to children on this issue so often our interviews in this particular paper was people or every other key stakeholders, so the coaches around them, the managers, um, et cetera. But actually the ethical line was challenging when it go, went to actually speak to the children. So that still remains an ongoing challenge, if you like, is that how do you 
ethically engage children on this, this topic. And often we do so when they've passed 18 and they're looking back over their experiences, but it's very challenging still to do research actually when they're under 18. I can only imagine the preparation that went into to what you're doing and the sensitivity and, and yeah, the idea that, look, this, we're not priests. What you tell yeah. us, you know, if it crosses a line, we, we have to report it. Yeah, that's uh, it's really fascinating from that perspective of, of research in this area. Now, I imagine you collected a lot of data because you got interviews and, and focus groups and speaking to a lot of different people about, I assume, a broader range of issues. How did you go bringing that all together? How did you go about analyzing all that data? Yeah, absolutely. It was uh, you know, a whole lot of analysis uh, to, to conduct in terms of what we try to do is look at each case individually. So there's five cases. So we looked at that qualitatively using the reflexive thematic analysis, the Braun and Clark kind of approach where we looked at each case and analysed the themes that were, that were coming out. So we did those kind of five separately. And then we kind of tried to put the data set together and think, um, what are the commonalities across all five? And then where are the, where are the differences? And where are the interesting intersections? So to pick up an example from the model is that you know leadership's important but what that looks like in a, a large you know organization that works in sport development right around the world in lots of countries that looks very different to somebody who may just be in one location a small sport for development organization um so we're trying to pick out those themes that you know committed leadership works but actually what it looks like on the ground is very different depending on the nature of the organization so we had that within case analysis and then um this paper is really is that cross case analysis to see okay what what works irrespective of the setting if you get these things in place, what it might look like on the ground is different, but actually the fundamental thing is you need that structure, you need the leadership and you need to engage the people irrespective of what you're trying to do. So we were trying to look at those overarching themes um, for this particular paper. So based on that, uh, I know you mentioned a couple of things there, but uh, what were the key findings that, uh, that you got from this data? I think it's that double-edged coin of what I was talking about there. On the one hand is actually these things work wherever you are in the world. So actually safeguarding and safeguarding culture um, can be developed if you get these things right for that setting. The second half is that cultural aspect that I mentioned, so that actually, um, if I pick up on the, the safeguarding system, in some parts of the world, that's, that works when it's very bureaucratic and there's online forms and everybody uh, does it that way. In, in other parts of the world, it's maybe, there's those concepts of um, easy access to the internet, there's no filing cabinet, you know, there might just be a coach with a bag of balls and that's their office, there's no sense of that. So the, the system that works there might be more, um, orally based and so when you report things how do you manage that securely and still manage it correctly without creating a lot of bureaucracy which is alien to that particular setting so I think that was an interesting finding about that some things are universal but actually there's that that tailoring for it to, for it to actually have a real impact on the ground and that's where the engaging the stakeholders is really powerful so rather than us saying you know here's a template from a code of conduct in the UK it was rather you know rip that up let's start again you know if, if you were trying to understand what's appropriate behavior you know what how would you do it you know in some places it would be you know drawing pictures would be more powerful or it would be um how they describe it in a different way or they need different analogies so empowering them to find the solution rather than giving it to them was really really powerful because you see lots of examples where people take a safeguarding policy they change the name of the sport to their sport put it on the website and you think that's going to have such a limited impact but they could say well we tick the box you know we've got the policy um, but beyond that, if anybody is aware of it or actually things that practice is very, very limited. So um, I think it's that that engagement of stakeholders is really important to give them a sense of ownership. And once they've had been involved at every stage of these things, it really was found to, to work. So if you just say, here's a policy, sign it, tick a box, use it, that doesn't work. But if you say, actually, we're developing a policy, let's get your views, let's have a session where we all share ideas. 
we have a draft, they get input. So by the time you've actually got to the stage where they're signing up to it, they really get why they're doing it, why they've gone for that process. They get a sense of ownership. Um, and then when things go against the policy later on, they're much more able to say, actually, we agreed this and um, that's not in line with the policy. So giving that sense of ownership and power um, over to people is important, both from a research point of view. So knowing our expertise and, and uh, making them feel uh, expertise, but then within organisations as well, it's kind of giving some of the power that leaders have. If you're, if you're a sports manager, thinking it's not all down to you to solve everything, but maybe your role as a leader is to actually facilitate the people working for you to find the solution. So I think people get concerned that they've got to be the one writing the policy and creating the procedures when actually it's, if you empower your workforce, they've got so much knowledge. Uh, and we used to say to them, you know, our, as a research team in total, you know, we've maybe got um, 30, 40 years of experience of doing research. But actually, when you look at an organization with maybe 100 employees, you know, they could have 2000 years of experience uh, of working within safeguarding. So we used to say that kind of thing to say, look, you've got way more expertise than we will ever have as a, as a research team. So let's see how we can use that. And that, that really helped to change the dynamic that, you know, they were the participants and we were the researchers. Rather, it was we're all collaborating on the project together with, with different expertise. And that, that was a really enjoyable aspect of the project, I think. Yeah, almost them being co-researchers rather than research participants. Um, yeah, is, is yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And that, that's why we had to make it a very qualitative approach because, you know, in other forms of sport, you can measure, you know, how fit someone is or how strong they are, but actually how they how safe somebody is is really quite a challenging thing. You only realise perhaps when it goes wrong um, and therefore you you can, um, by default, realise, oh, that was a problem. And, and that was an interesting challenge about how do people know if they're good at, good at safeguarding or not? Because often people view the number of cases as an indicator. So they have this idea that the goal is zero cases, which of course is not an ideal world. But when you're working with a bigger organisation, um, what you realise is that when you start putting safeguards in place and trying to build this safeguarding culture, unanimously across all the organisations we work with, the number of cases goes up. And their initial reaction was, my goodness, what, what are you researchers doing? We, you know, we didn't have all these cases till you came along. You know, you're making the problem worse. And you have to explain that actually that's a good thing, that people are trusting the system, they... They know how to report it to. They think something's going to be done about it. So cases going up was a good thing, but that was quite a challenging thing to, to explain because it's they, there's an, obviously a reluctance really to have cases, um, which is ultimately what we're trying to get to. But to get there, the number of cases will never to be go up in the in the first instance, and then they'll gradually go down and become more and more minor cases as the system works um, more effectively. So that that's assessing what safeguarding actually means. Um, is a challenging area so that's where there's a lot of qualitative work there's not a simple questionnaire you can use yet or a simple measure of, of safety um so you're right yeah they were they were kind of taking on the role as being part of our research team to help us solve the problem now from a, a theoretical perspective from an academic perspective we'll get onto the practical in a second but from that broader perspective how did this advance our understanding of uh safeguarding culture and, and the theory yeah, I think we, we really drew on from a theoretical perspective, Bandura's work on the social cognitive theory. So they, um, foundations is this idea that there's overlap between behaviours and the environment. And so we drew on the idea of reciprocal determinism, i.e. this, the leader, the system and the engaging stakeholders, all three are constantly working together. So safeguarding culture is actually viewed as a, as a learning kind of process. So when you join an organisation, you quickly get messages. So anybody listening, think about the organisation they work with, whether it's sport or not. You quickly get messages about is safeguarding important where we work? What do the leaders think about it? How do people get treated when they cross the line? And so you're constantly learning and getting new information and processing in that. And that if you if that's supporting a safeguarding system, then that, that works well. So we're trying to see something as a safeguarding as a dynamic process that keeps changing rather than 
traditionally where it's, oh, we have a policy, you know, that's it, or we, we give everyone a background check, that's it, we're safe. Um, so rather it's that, that more holistic approach and an ongoing approach, which I think where we've um, made a, a contribution in terms of theoretically applying um, the classic work of Bandura and, and the learning to one of um, safeguarding culture, rather than it's a series of boxes that are ticked and we've, we've solved it, but we see safeguarding as a, a journey, not a destination. So you've never really got safeguarding sorted completely in an organization. There's always something coming up. So, you know, even when we did the, re the research, since then there's new things coming around, like we couldn't have predicted um, uh, COVID kind of happened after our data collection or uh, things like online risks and social media is becoming more of a risk. So in an organization, you've, you've never kind of got to a stage where safeguarding is done. There's always something new and hence that ongoing review of the, the system and the leadership and the stakeholders is, is important. So yeah, that the theoretical work of Bandora and then as I mentioned, the, the other high risk industries trying to be creative and looking at literatures where we wouldn't normally look at it, but thinking actually people have thought about this issue you know, whether it's um, in hospitals or in um, in aviation for a long time, they, they've had accidents or incidents very different fundamentally to child protection, but still the idea about how can we learn from, from incidents and create a culture where people aren't um, blaming each other or scared to make a mistake. You actually get beyond that to see in other industries where people do share near misses and experiences to learn from it. And it's not a blame culture, it's more of a, a learning culture. So that constantly helps the organization get better. So we were trying to transfer some of those, those um, over. So theoretical point of view, hopefully this new model gives us a foundation upon which to, to do a lot more research um, in this area. And from a practical perspective, which I'm sure the, the co-researchers, the participants were asking, what can I do from a practical perspective? So what advice would you give those sport organizations, sport managers, even parents on what they can do to help uh, child protection and provide a safeguarding culture? Yeah, yeah, and what we found is it's just quite daunting, particularly if it's a new organisation or someone's just taken over. It just seems like a mountain that's insurmountable. So what we recommend as part of our implementation guides that we have alongside this work is the um, a self audit that starts you off. So you could do that as a coach, parent, a manager, whatever role. You could look at your organisation against our model and say, okay, how is the safeguarding system? Do people know about it? Do they use it? How is the how is the leadership? You know, how how good it is? You know, relative to where you'd like it to be. How engaged are the stakeholders? And we would say, once you've reflected on, on that and identify, okay, just have an action plan, if you like, to say, well, our first thing, if you've got nothing in place whatsoever, the first thing might be, okay, we need a policy as our foundation. So, so let's think, well, how would that look like um, from a, a systems point of view? What, how would it in integrate into our system? Who would lead this? And how do we engage coaches, parents? So by having something clear like that, that makes it actionable in the short term that you can work towards, because um, if you try and do everything at once, it's not going to help. So I think it's doing a self-audit against this and trying to think, okay, let's have a policy. If you've already got a policy in place and it's working really well, let's think about, well, maybe it's the, the case management system is, is the, the thing you really need to focus on. So again, what reporting procedures do you have? Who's got clear leadership and oversight of that? Are people engaged? Do they know about it? Do they feel confident to use it? Um, so that's what I would do. If, if I was sat there and just taking on a role in an organisation or I was working in one, um, in a safeguarding role, I would say, look at our model and reflect how well are we doing on that? Where are the, the successes, what's doing well, and where are the areas we can focus on? And using that information to, to establish a short-term goal that gives you a sense of progress. And it, it links in well with my analogy to the journey, because I think sometimes people think safeguarding is so big that they do nothing because it's just it's something that it had too much for them to achieve. Whereas if you think, well, actually, in six months, we can go through a process developing a policy that's realistic for our, for our setting. Um, and this is how we're going to get there. So 
give you a sense of progress rather than thinking you've got to get to the end of the journey as quick as possible it's rather as long as you're moving along the journey and making progress then your safeguarding culture will be getting better and better as we go along so i think it's better to do something you know small and progressing rather than be daunted by the the magnitude and looking at other organizations have got lots of things in place thinking we're never going to get there but it's that that process and i think the other thing is not not to do it alone we found with our our, our case studies what we um we established um what we call virtual learning sets so we we put organizations together um in similar parts of the world or in similar organizations and that was a really powerful pillar that really underpinned progress so um rather than us again as go as researchers being experts we, we were facilitating peer learning so I think that's another thing I'd recommend is that if you are in a role and you look at this model and you're not, and you're not really sure where, where to start, there will be other organisations in your setting, whether it's similar sports clubs, maybe even schools locally, maybe your governing body. Um, there will be other people in safeguarding roles that can support you. So it's if you're in a, in a country where there's not much in place, can you establish a network or a group of people that meet online to share experiences? We found that really helped people because often they can feel isolated. Often it's they can be a volunteer and they haven't necessarily got lots of qualifications and they're just told, OK, you're the safeguarding lead um, and, and that's it. And you're, they're left in that position. So actually, by being part of a network and a, and a supportive group was really powerful to, to learn together on asking them questions. So I think the self audit would be one and then reaching out to other organisations and, and people and um, engaging with them to develop relationships would be the second key thing I'd recommend. And potentially read the paper as well. I think that might be helpful. Too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And if you can cite it, even better. <laughs> uh, Daniel, uh, I think it's a really important research, really impactful. And, and I'm sure practitioners will be um, uh, taking a keen eye into, into your findings and trying to implement some of those recommendations. So it, it's been a really important conversation. So um, it, it's been fantastic having you on. Thanks so much. No worries. Pleasure. And if anybody wants to get in touch, you can just uh, Google our names and find us on the website if you want to do research with us or we can support your organization in some way then do not hesitate to get in touch we're always happy to, to help and learn learn together on this thanks so much daniel thanks and thanks for listening to sport management review insights head to the sport management review website to check out all the latest research that's being published including the article discussed in this episode safeguarding culture towards a new approach to preventing child maltreatment in sport that's it for this episode but of course you can listen to many more on your favorite podcast player and if you could follow the podcast and give us a five-star rating that'd be great too until next time it's bye for now